Well, it's terrific to see you here. Uh, we're going to be looking at that uh, reading we just heard um, from Abraham, from Genesis chapter uh, 22. And uh, we're going to be finishing tonight our series on uh, Abraham. Next week, we actually start um, the, uh, on the book of Revelations. We go to the other end of the Bible. And uh, if you've ever wanted to know what the book of Revelation is about, well, uh, do make sure you're here next week to begin on that series. Um, but let's pray and ask for God's help as we understand, try and understand uh, Abraham and this strange story. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, here we are. We are ready to hear you. We, we would that you would speak to us, open our hearts and our minds, and ready us to be obedient to your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, not many people I meet are actually hostile to the Christian faith. You don't meet a lot of people around here. I mean, there are people, uh, if you go on Twitter, there are people hostile to everything. So that's not particularly surprising, right? But, so there are people who will hate you if you uh, become a Christian, if you out yourself as a Christian there. But around here, not so much. People are quite nice about Christianity. Lots of people are quite happy that the church is here in the community. And uh, Hugh McKay, the sociologist, says that people in Australia are on, on the whole very happy that there are Christians around them, and they have, when I meet them, very nice things to say about Christianity, and mostly people will say to me, they really appreciate Christian values, that Christianity is about living an ethical and nice, decent life, a life of integrity and honesty, love of neighbour and generosity. And it is a very nice vision, that idea, that that's what Christianity is here for. But Jesus, the one who said, love your neighbour, and even said, love your enemy, also said, Hate your parents, your children, and your siblings. Even hate your own life, or you can't be a follower of mine. Now, that's not very nice. It isn't what decent people think of when they think of Jesus of Nazareth. But apparently, faith in him involves something more than just having a bunch of values or being nice. It involves something much starker than that. So have we heard him right? Does following Jesus really mean a rejection of our family ties, as he seems to be saying? In which case, can I really be convinced to follow him? After all, I love my parents and my children and my siblings and my wife. They're all that is precious to me. I'm sure that's true of you as well. To take it a little bit deeper, does this mean that God's call to me means that I have to deny everything that nature tells me is good? good. Doesn't that kind of way of thinking make me into the sort of fanatic that stalks our nightmares, like some kind of terrorist? Now, when we first read the story of Abraham and Isaac, we might be thinking the same sort of thing. This isn't a model of nice family values. Would you agree, this story? God seems to be commanding Abraham to go against everything that God himself stands for. Now, it's a very famous story, one of the most famous of all Bible stories, and many people have read it as a kind of piece about child killing. Um, The 1960s um, songwriter Leonard Cohen, anyone heard of Leonard Cohen? Died last year, and he wrote the song Alleluia, which has been covered by hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, And he wrote this, he wrote a song called The Story of Isaac, which is an anti-war song, and he said, look, this story is really about Men, old men, sacrificing young men, just as happens in war. Bob Dylan, in his song, Highway 61 Revisited, 
He tells this story as if God is an almost bloodthirsty tyrant bullying Abraham to kill Isaac. And these are the words of this, this song. Um, oh, God. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. I'm not going to do a Bob Dylan uh, impersonation, but he has won the Nobel Prize. So uh, he's a very significant man. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe say, what? God say, you can do what you want, Abe. But the next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where do you want this killing done? And God said, out on Highway 61. It's not a very nice picture of God, is it? And it certainly seems to jar with our expectations of what God, how God portrays himself and meets Abraham in the Bible. Before now, the Lord God has been promising Abraham that he would be the father of many people and a blessing to all the earth, living in a land that was to be his inheritance. And of course, that's how Abraham first heard God when he was about 75 years old. But then there was this delay. Do you remember that delay? The promises weren't instantly delivered on, and it went on for decades as Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Abraham waited and waited, and still there was no child. And so, look, they took their matters into their own hands, and Sarah, who was getting really frustrated by now, she took her servant girl, a lady called Hagar, and she said, look, go into Abraham and uh, do what needs to be done, and Handmaid's Tale style, if you've been watching SBS, and uh, sure enough, Hagar gave birth to a child. He was called Ishmael. In time, Sarah at last gave birth to her own son, Isaac. But this creates a bit of a problem. Who's going to be the one to inherit the promises? Is it going to be Hagar's son, Ishmael, the son of Abraham, but not the son of Sarah? Or is it going to be Isaac? Hasn't everything just got confused? Well, to cut a long story short, God makes it very clear. He says, it's, he says to Abraham, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So Isaac's the one. There won't be any switching in for him. There won't be any sharing of the deal. It's going to be Isaac. And so Abraham, in this heartbreaking episode, happens in the chapter before the one we've been looking at tonight, he sends Hagar and Ishmael on their way out into the desert where God looks after them. And so there we get to Genesis chapter 2. We know not how many years later, was Isaac now a boy or a young man? We don't really know. But God says to Abraham, out of the blue it seems, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now what must Abraham have thought at that moment? What must he have thought? This is a paradoxical, sort of unthinkable command. This is the voice of the God who has promised him everything. Promised all those good things. The good God, who for years had promised the birth of this child. 25 years had gone past, the child is born. And he specifically said it was going to be this child through which the promises were going to be fulfilled. Now, to be honest, Abraham's record of believing these promises was a little bit sketchy. He was quite happy to bed, to bed Hagar. And like Sarah, he had once even laughed at God when he'd heard the promise. He'd argued with God. He'd hidden from God. He'd pretended his wife was his sister, not once, but twice. But now, he's got his boy, Isaac. 
Now, Isaac, it's a funny name. It's literally a funny name. It actually means he laughs. And when you think about it, Isaac sounds a bit like a chuckle, doesn't it? Or am I, is that, I'm just making that up. He laughs. That's what it means because his mother said when he was born, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears this will laugh not at me now, but with me. The gift of God had turned what she thought was a joke into joy. But now, God says, take this boy, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. God knows that Abraham loves the boy. It's interesting, isn't it, that he says, the boy whom you, whom you love, your only son. As if Abraham didn't know those things. It underlines the fact that God knows these things. It isn't just the case of Isaac being the heir and there being no spare. The old man has given his heart to this boy and that touch makes God's request seem all the more weird, all the more strange. Why would he do this? Why would he ask of Abraham to do this thing which not only goes against his own promises but seems to make no sense according to his character? Is God some bloodthirsty and cruel God who delights in the sacrifice of a child? The Bible itself speaks repeatedly against child sacrifice because the nations around Israel used to practice child sacrifice as they did in South America. And the Bible says, no, it's a terrible practice. Have normal operations been suspended? Has God got out of the wrong side of the bed that morning? Has he forgotten who he is? We may be thinking all of this, and Abraham may have been thinking all of that, but he sets out on his journey. He packs the donkeys with enough wood for the sacrifice, and he takes two servants, two of his young men, and he takes his son Isaac, the delight of his heart, the one he loves, his only son, and off they set. When they see the mountain in the distance, Abraham tells his servants to wait with the donkey. And then he takes the wood and he sets it on his son's shoulders. Just like many, many years later, someone else would carry the wood that would be used in their own death. But Isaac notices that something's missing. You know, he, he looks and he kind of adds up. He goes, you've got the fire, you've got the wood, you've got the knife. Dad... Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? That's a terrible question. It strikes us readers right in the heart, doesn't it? We know. We know that the terrible equation here points straight at Isaac himself as the burnt offering. What else can the end of this journey mean? And, and, and what then? I mean, if this story ends with the brutal slaying of Isaac by his own father in obedience to the command of the God who promised him this child, we must be thinking, how can this God be good? If this God who promised all of this ends up having Abraham put Isaac to death, then what can he mean? He sort of contradicts himself. The joke that had become the joy would once again become a sort of joke, except this time a sick joke. The sort of joke that a divine bully plays. The story that ends with the knife slitting Isaac's throat, if that's how the story is to end, 
can only mean in the end that God really doesn't exist or that he's some kind of demon. Abraham would be deluded into thinking that this God had spoken to him. Psychopathically deluded, the kind of person who hears voices and then kills people because of it. God would not be there, but a, a devil of his own imagination. The human hope of breaking free of the, like the cycle of slaughter would be futile. And, you know, it's a feeling that a lot of people in the 20th and 21st century have had. They've thought, well, if there is a God, and it seems like there should be, but I can't really, I can't really square that with the suffering that I see all around me. It's, it's not so much the atheism of the philosophers, of the Richard Dawkins of this world, but the atheism of real disappointment with a God who seems distant and uncaring. Recently I read, or I shouldn't say I read, I, I listened to it on Audible, uh, I read the autobiography of Eddie Izzard. You know Eddie Izzard, the British comedian, Death Star Canteen? Uh, if you haven't heard of him, there's hours and hours of YouTube fun for you. Um, he's, uh, he's a terrific comedian, really insightful. He's, uh, he's, got the ins he's actually got dyslexia. Now, it gives him that kind of perception that comes from not having read many books, I think. He's just got this insight into the, into the way the world is. And in this book, he can't stop saying again and again and again, he, he, just, he must say it 50 times if he says it once, I'm not kidding, that God does not exist. God's not there. And he'll say things like, oh God, oh, but that's right, God doesn't exist. He says it over and over. And for him, he says, the reason I don't believe in God is because we had this war, the Second World War, and God didn't come down and do anything about it. But it's more personal than that because he also tells the story of how his mother died when he was only six years old. And he says, if God didn't stop my mother from dying, this is still a real wound for him, then clearly God doesn't exist. Only he goes on and on and on about this God that doesn't exist. It seemed to him to make no sense. Why hasn't God come down here to explain this? Our story here, it teeters on the edge of that thought. If the boy is going to die, can God really be there? But if we look more carefully at Abraham's words, we'll notice something. Have a look at verse 5. We'll notice there that Abraham says to his servants, we're going to worship and then we will return. And notice, so he's not going to return alone, and notice that when Abraham tells Isaac about the sacrifice, he's very carefully ambiguous about it. Maybe he didn't want to upset the boy too much, but maybe this is the essence of what Abraham's faith at the moment is. It, in the midst of the confusion, the absurdity, why is God doing this? He knows this about God. He says, God, what does he say? God will provide himself, will provide the lamb. God will provide. I don't know how, I can't see the end of this journey, but I know that God, who God is, and I know that he will provide. And so they get to the mountain. And somehow, the old man, it must have taken him ages, he builds an altar there, and then he binds his son on top of the wood, on top of the altar, and he picks up his knife to slay his boy. You imagine his hand trembling as he does so, out of, out of just his shock and sadness, as well as from age. And you can only imagine him, what's going through his head at this point. God, I'm here because you told me I've been obedient to you. Now, what's the plan? How will you provide? What sort of faith was needed to pick up the knife? We may at this point say, a perverse and fanatical kind of faith. 
A kind of faith no one really should have. The faith of the terrorists. The faith of the madmen. The faith of the psychopath. But if we've read carefully, it was not this at all. It was the faith that God is true to His promises and that God will provide. It was the faith that God is the provider. That's what Abraham had learnt in his life through all his mistakes, all his errors. He'd learnt that God is the one who provides. And what's more, he's learnt that God is not limited by the way we human beings think. He's not limited by the boundaries of human life. If God is the one who can give a child to an aged couple, and in fact, wait a couple of decades till they get really old, just so we know it's nothing to do with them, it's actually a work of God. If he can do that, then God is the one who can raise the dead. If God is the one who called everything into being from nothing, then God is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, even as Abraham offers his boy Isaac at this moment. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, a New Testament book written many years after this, we read these verses. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead. See, Abraham... He knew that God could raise someone from the dead. He knew that God could do that. God had raised someone from the dead by giving him Isaac in the first place out of his aged body and his wife's aged body. God is the God of extraordinary things. God is the God, as we heard in our first reading, who does the impossible, who specializes in the impossible. And, says Hebrews, he considered that and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. And this is, of course, what happens in the story. Just as Abraham is lifting the knife at that moment of no return, the angel of the Lord says, shouts out and says, Stop, Abraham. And Abraham looks up and discovers a ram in the thicket uh, that is caught by its horns. And he offers, grabs that ram and offers it in place of his son as a substitute for him, as a sacrifice to God because God has provided You can only imagine his relief and joy. What had this test meant for him? What was it meant to prove? Well, Abraham himself decided to call that place, the Lord will provide. Actually, you can see from the footnote down the bottom, it became a name for God. Jehovah Jireh, it says down the bottom, or Jehovah Yecher. Now, in, when I was, uh, in, in the 1980s, uh, when I was in youth group, there was this really cheesy 1980s song we used to sing called Jehovah Jireh. So it's kind of burnt on my head. And it's all about this very story that God will provide. That's one of God's great names. But it's deeper than that. God doesn't just provide ordinary stuff. He doesn't just provide things as we would expect or in our timing. He provides for us in ways that force us to look beyond the span of normal human operations, the normal way human people do things, beyond the span even of an ordinary human life. And there's something here that we can see but that Abraham couldn't. We get a clue when we find out that Mount Moriah, the very mount where Abraham went with Isaac, was actually later the site at which, on which the Israelites built the temple in the city of Jerusalem. The city in which another son will one day be offered as a sacrifice. 
God spares Abraham the loss of Isaac, but instead offers Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Jesus freely goes as a sacrifice to substitute for us before God. God asks everything of Abraham, which seems like a heavy, impossible burden. Who could ask a father such a thing? But then provides Abraham with everything he means, everything he needs, and more. Abraham is asked by God to give up everything. That's the call to Abraham, but finds that when he does, that it is God who has given him everything. God is not the absent or cruel God of Eddie Izzard. He's not a God who demands the sacrifice of children to feed his bloodlust. The God of Jesus Christ is the God who so loved the world, remember this verse, that he gave his only beloved son, that whosoever, like Abraham, believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. And today, the God of Abraham calls us. And he calls us to no less a faith than the faith of Abraham. When we hear his call to us, it may seem impossible to us. It may seem difficult for us. When Jesus call us, calls us, he doesn't merely call us to be nice. He calls us to be his disciples, to pick up our cross and to follow him wheresoever he leads. He calls you to leave behind the things of this world, to not be attached to them, to not seek self-fulfillment, but rather to go with self-denial. He calls you to leave everything behind. For some of us, this may not seem like a big deal. But for some of us here, this may mean risking very precious things. For the rich young ruler that Jesus met, it was too hard. Much, much too hard. So can Jesus be serious? Wouldn't only the worst kind of fanatic believe in him? But when you step out on the road after Jesus, you aren't stepping out blind. You know that it comes from the God. This call comes from the God whose very name is compassionate and steadfast love. You know that his name is the God who provides. Like Abraham, you know that God is true to his promises and powerful to raise the dead. But unlike Abraham, you know that he's actually done it in history. He's actually raised a dead man in history. He's actually shown to us. Eddie Izzard is entirely wrong, unfortunately. God has entered history. He has not left us alone in the difficulty of this world. He has come to, to, to our planet. He's lived among us. And he's shown us what, he, what we mean to him by dying in our place and by Jesus rising from the dead. And when you set out on the way after Jesus, you discover something else. You discover that this, idea, this, this name of, of God, the Lord will provide, is not just a theory. It's a reality. All the things that we've left behind to follow Christ were things we only had from the hand of God in the first place. You couldn't cling to those things anyway. You're not left bereft or empty-handed when you follow Jesus Christ. We are not actually being called to choose between family, friends, possessions and Christ we are being called to choose, rather, between what is temporary and what's eternal. We leave behind the things we don't really have at all. The missionary and martyr, an American missionary martyr, Jim Elliott, who died in, uh, in uh, the mid-20th century in South America, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is the great paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. Abraham is called even to give up the son that God promised him, only to find that God gives him back and more. We're called to follow after Jesus, come what may. But we find that in Christ we meet the God who gives us all we need and more. When I leave my precious things behind to follow Jesus Christ, when I place them at his his feet, when I put my relationships at his feet, when I put my career at his feet, when I put my education at his feet, when I set aside social respectability and having a good name and reputation, when I place all that I have at his disposal, I find that I'm blessed in abundance, often in those very things that I've let go. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or mothers or sisters or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, house, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So when the call of Jesus comes, will you say, as Abraham said, and as Mary said, here I am. Here I am. I will do what you ask. Because I know, God, that you are the one who provides, that you keep your promises, and that in you I am secure and safe. What this means for each of us will be different. For Abraham, well, after this incident, his life, in one sense, didn't look any different. He still had his possessions, and he still, it turned out, had his son. We each have our different circumstances, but the promise to us is the same. And the God we will discover is the same then as today, the Lord God, the God who provides even his own son for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God who provides. And we, pray, we ask now, Father, for the courage to follow you, uh, even when we cannot see where you are leading us, knowing what you are like and knowing that you are the one who can raise even the dead. Amen.